So welcome, all y'all. We've got lots of nice packed house. Welcome to all of you online, especially those who are at conference. It's wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord. So we are continuing our study of the book of Psalms, and today we are dipping lightly into Psalm 119. And there's a few interesting things I'd like to unpack before we go too much farther. Um, one of them is that throughout, well, really throughout whole scripture, but throughout especially Psalm 119, the psalmist uses many, many words to talk about God's word. He uses words like your laws, your judgments, your promises, your spoken words, your statutes, your decrees, your precepts, your ways. All of that is God's word. Does that make sense? Okay, they're not exactly analogous. Each one has a little bit different meaning, but they are basically, this is the word of God. So it's generally thought that David wrote this psalm, but it's very interesting. He doesn't seem to have a logical chain of thought that he's developing through this. Instead, it reads more like his prayer journal. That Toward the end of his life, he kind of went into it and just started pulling out some of his favorite things that God had shown him and then organized them according to the alphabet. He'd, he'd start with the first letter of the alphabet and pull out the verses that made sense with that letter and go on through it until he had this huge masterpiece of a psalm. Today, we're going to be looking at the chunk that goes with the letter Nun, which kind of is analogous to an N, more or less. But an interesting thing about the Hebrew alphabet, in, in English, a letter is a sound. That's all it is. It's an mm. But in the Hebrew alphabet, each letter is also a symbol. It has meanings attached to it. It kind of is a package of meaning that you put with other packages of meaning to make a word. Nun, for instance, it's, uh, let's put that graphic up so they can see the, is it up there? I, I can't tell from the back screen. Okay, so it, it symbolizes and packages some meanings like life being lived. It's kind of a pictograph of a fish swimming in the water or a plant germinating and sprouting. It's the idea of multiplying and continuing things that are prolific and eternal and everlasting. It's also the first letter in the word for faithfulness. So it's kind of life being lived in God. And uh, this chunk of the psalm is about David's faith in God and God's faithfulness to David. So that's, that's kind of a little package of what this little chunk of verses is about. But we're going to unpack the entire body of Psalm 119. And if those of you who are familiar with Psalm 19 are going, oh, I want some lunch. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to do this anyway because there's stuff that we do for our own good. Because we're supposed to. It's supposed to work. It's like eating our vegetables and doing our workout. It's, you know, we just, you just got to get it done, you know, and you're walking through the living room and you see your Bible there by your devotional chair and you, you, you're supposed to do it. It's supposed to do you good. And so you take up this program of I'm going to read the Bible in a year and you, you slog your way through it. And some parts are really cool. I mean, the book of Ruth, who could not love the book of Ruth? I, you know, how sweet. And then there's Leviticus. <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> and you just got to grind your way through it, okay? Well, Psalm 19 is kind of like that. It's, it's 176 verses, and they're all about the same thing. In most Bibles, that's five pages, and it's all about the glory of the Word of God. Over and over and over and over and over. God's word is glorious and glory of the word of God and how much I love God's word for five pages. So if you're reading the Bible as a task, as a thing that you do because you're supposed to do it and it's going to do you good, this can be an uphill climb. And I, I know nobody's going to admit to that. I'll do it for you. But we all know what it is, Okay. Our reading of the Bible can be glorious light showing us the heart of God, leading us into God in the way that nothing else really could. It can be that, but it's very, very easy, and I know, again, I'm speaking for all of us, it's very easy to spend time in the Word of God and totally miss God. All right, I, you've done that, right? You've been there. The point of this sermon if you, if you nap through the rest of it, hang on to this point. It's not, I believe, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible is holy. It's not God. Okay? I know I'm skating right up to the edge of the ice here. We're not going to go over. Okay? The Bible is holy. It's not God. Our reading of the Bible can become an idol to us. We can make the Bible a substitute for God himself. Memorizing and studying and researching and even obeying can be dangerous when we use it to avoid God. How could that possibly be? How can you use that to avoid God? We're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. And if it doesn't apply to you, don't worry about it. But it applies to me, so I'm going to share it with you because I think it's kind of important. So what makes the difference between reading the Bible and finding God and drawing life and reading the Bible and avoiding God and drawing religion? Because think about it. David, who wrote this psalm, the only Bible he really had was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, just the Torah. And yet he found God there. And you can't read the Psalms and not know that David found God. They had a relationship. Sometimes they had fights, but they had a relationship. Jesus had Torah and some other prophet stuff. Not a whole lot more. He found God. Wow, did he find God. The Pharisees had exactly the same material. They had Torah and the whatever prophets. And they totally missed God. And I'm saying the Pharisees. Obviously, some of them found God and some of them didn't. But the ones that we read about that we're dealing and calling the Pharisees, Jesus kept knocking heads with them because they were the experts in the in Bible and totally missed God. Didn't recognize God when he showed up. What happened to the, to the Pharisees? I mean, we have to assume that they meant well. They were putting energy into it. So what happened? How do they manage to replace love with just a bunch of rules? 
Eugene Peterson, who wrote the, the message version of the Bible, tells a story that is, it really kind of helps to capture this whole dynamic here. I'm going to read this to you. He says, imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window in the living room overlooking a lake and a grand view of the mountains. You have a ringside seat. Before all of this beauty, the cloud formations, the wild storms, the entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors and rocks and trees and wildflowers and water and animals coming through, at first you are absolutely captivated by this view. You sit and you stand and you look and you admire and you catch your breath and you can hardly bear to go to bed for looking at it. Several times a day you interrupt your work and stand in front of that window to take in the majesty and the beauty. And then one day you notice that some bird put a dropping on your glass. And you get a bucket of water and a towel and you clean it. A couple of days later a rainstorm leaves the window streaked and your bucket comes out again. One day some visitors with a tribe of small little sticky fingered kids and a dog with a wet nose came to visit, to visit you, and the moment they leave, you notice there's smudge marks and nose smears all over your glass. So they're hardly out the door before you have your bucket out again. You are so proud of that window, that big, beautiful window. It's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to your window, obscuring the vision, distracting the view. Keeping that window clean now becomes compulsive for you. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees and all kinds of different cleaning solutions. You construct scaffolding outside on one inside and you have to get all the difficult corners and all the heights. This is a big window. You end up having the cleanest window in North America, but it's now been years since you looked through it. You've become a Pharisee. Does that kind of strike your heart a little bit? You meant well, you really did, but you've lost the view. Think about the Pharisees. They studied the Bible more than any of us will ever do. I mean, they memorized huge, weighty chunks of it. They kept the minutest rules carefully. Most of us don't bother with most of them. I mean, if it's kind of inconvenient, you know, yeah. They loved the church like a soldier loves the flag. If Jesus had not always been knocking heads with them, we would have assumed that they were the heroes of the Bible. They were the people we kind of feel like we ought to be. But, 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 what happens when but comes out? Here's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. We're going to look at John chapter 5, verses 37 and 40. Jesus says, the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. But you've never heard his voice or seen him, his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you don't believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Ouch! How did they manage to miss Jesus? Were they confusing the Bible with God's living word? 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 to 19. Every now and then, Jesus kind of goes up in a sheet of flame with the Pharisees because they knock heads and that hurts, you know. So he's really letting them have it right now. He says, Woe to you, blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? I don't know about you, but I can picture being a Pharisee and thinking, wait a second, which is it? Okay? Because Scripture is holy. It is holy. But sometimes we forget who lives in it that makes it holy. Because without God in it, this is just ink and paper. It's just a black book. Okay? or an app on your phone, whatever, a chore. I wonder whether, and if I try to imagine myself as a Pharisee, I think this is where I would land, I wonder whether they thought they had already found God so they weren't looking. I think that's the mistake I would have made. Jesus says that our righteousness has to be more than the Pharisees and they were really working hard at being righteous. He says, yours has got to be more than theirs or you're never going to get it. You're going to miss the kingdom. Here's the deal. This is not a manual for living. Wait a minute, what? Isn't it? Uh Uh-uh. It's not a manual for living. Why would we want to treat the Bible as a manual for living? I think it's because we want a handle on life. We really would love to have a manual. I mean, I've never been a parent, but I've heard parents say, how come this thing didn't come with a manual? It's running wild. What am I supposed to do? In the ancient Near East, in the, in the countries around Israel where they were trying to live and grow up and, and be, learn how to be God's people, There were lots of religions. And the ancient Near Eastern gods were patent place in the sky, basically. They were unpredictable, selfish, not particularly moral, not interested in humans except as servants. Although the gods, I'm reading off this again, although the gods were behind every event, they did not ultimately control the future. They remained somewhat aloof from their human devotees. The creation of humans, in fact, is treated almost as an afterthought. Somebody's head exploded and the pieces became people. You know, something like that. Sometimes the gods depend on mortals for their well-being. You know, if you have to feed your idol or it's not going to do well. But the purpose of religion is to appease the gods, keep that capricious, unpredictable anger and kind of careless of peopleness under control so that they will be good and stable and your crops will grow. So the ancient religions carefully explained how to do all the necessary rituals, but they mostly kind of glossed over the moral requirements. You know, don't be a psychopath, but other than that, whatever. Indeed, the gods themselves were often guilty of gross vice and immorality. 
Consequently, people's view of morality was sort of distorted and they would determine their standing with the gods primarily on how they carried out the details of the ritual. Now, when you're a young religion trying to follow a god who's not like any other god who's ever happened, and you're growing up in the middle of this kind of situation, you tend to take on a little bit of that flavor. It's human nature to want to sort of do that. It's human nature for us to tend to see the gods or even God as kind of like managing a bad parent. Okay? I know I'm skating right up to the ice here, but think about this. If we read the Bible or even carry out our rituals with anxiety and fear rather than trust, like you do with a bad parent, the way you manage an unstable parent is you have to control every detail of how things are going on so they don't get mad. You have to take care of yourself because they're not really unavailable to you in any deep, meaningful way. You don't look for love and you don't trust love because you've already learned by the time you're this big that you're really not going to get much and you never relax. Some of you had bad parents, some of you had pretty decent parents. It's hard to imagine what it's like to grow up that way, but if you, you know somebody who did grow up that way, so you know it happens. Our enemy, the devil, has made us afraid to believe in God's goodness. He's taught us to expect disappointed hopes and broken promises and endless niggling complaints, blaming, and not being able to do anything right. You remember being 13 when you couldn't do anything right? Remember that? Yeah, okay. Our enemy has taught us that God is just a big human in the sky like us. That's bad news, folks. So why would we want a manual for living? Well, A, we want to be able to manage this unpredictable bad parent God. And another reason we might want a manual for living is so we can sort of hold God at arm's length and be God ourselves. I mean, that was Satan's original temptation. You could be like, you don't have to, you don't need him. You can do this. We want to be right more than we want to be righteous. Emmanuel's perfect for that. We prefer having answers to having questions. Count on Emmanuel for that. You're chasing God through the wilderness. Wouldn't it be nice to have permanence instead of having to wander all the time? Emmanuel will help you do that. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. You know, the first part of that sounds really cool. Wouldn't it be neat to have the gift of prophecy and faith that could move mountains and all the mysteries and knowledge? That's your manual. You know, and you can still read it even if you don't have love. No one's going to know. Another reason that we want to kind of keep God at arm's length a little bit is because we don't know what he's going to do. I mean, if you pray and ask God to show up because you've got this situation that you kind of need a manual for, we've had those situations and God shows up, you are going to lose control of that situation. Right? Okay. I don't know if you've ever done that, but trust me, you can't hang on to a situation which you prayed and asked God to invade, and he does. 
It's going his way from now on. Another reason that I might want a manual instead of the living word of God is because God's word is not passive. I might be afraid of what it's going to do to me if I let it be alive in me. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, The word of God is alive. It's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Ouch! It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So I might prefer a manual to that. I might want a manual because I'm afraid of what the law of love requires of me. If I let God's word be alive and active in me and take seriously his commands about loving, I'm afraid of that. I've got to give my love and trust to God alone. Hmm. I've got to open my heart to care for others who don't particularly care for me. I've got to practice radical hospitality. Well, maybe if I've got good locks on my door. I've got to sacrifice my time and energy and money for the good of those who are in darkness. I'd rather have a manual, frankly. I'd rather just have a book of instructions and go my own way. Okay, so it's easy to scrape off the Pharisees for preferring a manual to a living word of God, but we do it too. You know we do. The Pharisees are the family values people. They're the ones we're trying to be, remember? They emerged during a turbulent time, I'm reading another quote for you, a turbulent time when Judaism was struggling to maintain its identity. The priesthood was corrupt, immorality was rampant, the dominant spread of Greek culture threatened the Jewish way of life. The Pharisees gained a foothold in local synagogues and among the common people. They became the primary Bible teachers in each village. The Pharisees were sharp, biblically based, tradition honoring, and conservative in their views. They held an extremely high view of Torah. They had strict obedience to the Torah, both the written commands and the oral traditions was essential to their faith and identity. Ultimately, the Pharisees believed that if the Jewish people as a whole would turn back to God and obey the Torah down to the smallest details, then and only then would God bless them as a nation once again. Does this sound a little creepily familiar? Okay, let's try it again, okay? They emerged during a turbulent time when Christianity is struggling to maintain its identity. The clergy is corrupt, immorality is rampant, the dominant spread of humanist media threatens the Christian way of life. They've gained a foothold in local churches and among the common people. They become the primary Bible teachers online. They're sharp, biblically based, tradition honoring, and conservative in their views. They hold an extremely high view of the Bible. Strict obedience to the Bible, both the commands and the denominational traditions are essential to their faith and identity. Ultimately, they believed that if the Christian people as a whole would turn back to God and obey the Bible down to the smallest details, then and only then will God bless them as a nation once again. Just to be clear. So, here's the deal. Our reading of the Bible, the way we read it, our attitude when we pick it up and crack it open or scroll through it, 
Whether it leads to life or to death seems to be a choice. I think it's the same choice that Adam and Eve faced when they're looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do they want to be, have knowledge and be like God? Or do they want to have intimacy with God? And I can totally see how they didn't pass that test. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna. I struggle sometimes with whether I want the manna or the communion. Why would I want a manual? My experience with the lamp. I'm going to tell you a little story. Way back when I was a baby pastor in seminary, we would meet for worship at a big barn at somebody's farm, and we would pray, and we would sing, and we would do all the cool stuff. And we, were, we had a speaker there that night, and we had been praying for quite some time with a woman who had brain cancer. And sometimes she would seem to get a little bit better, and sometimes she'd get a little bit worse, and we were struggling and struggling. And the speaker that night had said, don't, don't forget, your faith is key. Your faith in God's healing of her is going to be key to what God's able to do. I had to get up and leave the barn and go stand out in the driveway and lean against my car, and I was practically crying because I was fighting with God. How am I supposed to have faith in you when you don't perform? We pray, we scrape up all the faith we can find, and you don't do it, and then you blame us for not doing it because we didn't make you do it. How am I supposed you know, I mean, you know that loop. You've all prayed for somebody. And I was just freaking out. And one of my dear, dear friends, who was one of my prayer partners, came to me and she prayed with me. And the way we prayed was not, you know, oh God, please do this and that to her. She helped me to get into the presence of Jesus. And I laid it out before him. Jesus, what the heck? And he showed me something. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and call this a vision because I don't know what else to call it. But he, if you picture me in profile facing this way, okay, he showed himself, he was standing over, this is me, he's standing back here, and in his left hand he was holding a light from a chain, like a, a lit lamp from a chain, and it was lit, and he said to me, this is the knowledge and understanding that you want, this is the answers, this is all the stuff that you think I'm withholding from you, and he's holding it behind my head back here. And then in front of my face, I mean like this in front of my face, he said, look at me. Look at me. Look into me. Keep looking at me. Look deeper into me. And he just kept that up until finally I kind of got it. I still don't have answers to how God heals and what part faith plays. I don't, I don't get it. But I know to keep looking into him and just keep staring into him. Somehow that's my answer. It's a hard answer to live with sometimes. But when I go back there and live with that answer, it answers me. Does that kind of get that a little bit? I need a few nods. Yeah, okay, good. All right. David, who wrote Psalm 119, doesn't want God's word to be a manual for living. David has lived with God's word 
and he's pulling his treasures out of his prayer box, David has found God in God's word. David says, I have suffered very much. And he says, the wicked have laid a snare for me. And he says, every day I take my life in my hands. He's not just airy, fairy, unicorns and rainbowsing. He's, he's in it with God. He's slogging through it with God. He's not afflicted by political enemies. Well, he was afflicted by political enemies, yeah. But mostly, he's afflicted by the same stuff that afflicts us. I'm afflicted by Satan, who tells me lies about God and about you and about me and about life. I'm afflicted by my cares and concerns. How am I going to get this done? Oh, what, what about, and what if the world tells me to look out for number one, to hoard what I can get for me and mine, to believe in fear and shortfall, and to believe in myself, and to be afraid? That's what the world tells me. I'm afflicted by the hardness of my own heart. Amen? I know you know what I'm talking about. So my choice is, am I going to look at the Bible as a life manual and read it as a manual and go down that path? Or am I going to read the Bible to find God? Well, obviously I want to read the Bible to find God. I wouldn't be here talking about it otherwise. But how? Psalm 19, the whole five pages of it, is all about the glory of Scripture. Over and over and over and over and over, David references the glory of Scripture. But here's the thing. He doesn't talk about Scripture by itself. Every time he mentions anything about Scripture, he always ties it back to its author. He's not talking about words and commands and precepts and laws. He's talking about your words, your commands, your laws. You feel the difference? It's not rules and laws to manage his life and please God. It's God's word to reveal his character and help David and us be his image in the world. See, I can't be God's image by behaving myself. I mean, I've been behaving myself as long as you've known me, and seriously, <laughs> right? No, we have to actually live God's life standing in his heart. That's how we can be his image. We need the Holy Spirit, who is God, to reveal God's word to us and open our hearts to him in his word. It's, it's like this multi-pronged circuit. We need God to see God in God so we can have God and be God. Okay? All right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. This is Paul. However, as it is written, he says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Boy, drink deep on that one, huh? That's a good one. Thy word is a lamp, David says, but unless the lamp is lighted, unless the teaching of the Holy Spirit accompanies the word, we're reading in darkness still. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Well, is the Holy Spirit like credit? You have to have it in order to get it? <laughs> well, you know, Jesus tells that story. You know, even though if you're just humans, if your kid asks you for a fish, you don't hand them a scorpion or a brick or whatever. How much more will our Holy Father give us his spirit if we ask him? So what's the payoff for reading the word of God with God in order to see God? Think about the fruit of the spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. That's God's character. That's who the Holy Spirit is. So what about the crazy, confusing, and scary parts of the Bible? You know the ones I'm talking about. Satan says that God is an unstable, powerful, giant, invisible human in the sky, the old man upstairs. He says we need a manual for how to get on the right side of God, and the Bible is it. The world says everything happens randomly, without meaning or purpose, and you have to believe in yourself now that is confusing and scary and flat out crazy bad news. So when you come to the confusing, scary, and flat out crazy bits in the Bible, ask God to open your heart to his heart as you read. Ask him to show you your story in his story. Because brothers and sisters, there are some confusing, scary, and flat out crazy bits to our story. Amen? Okay. In our lives and in the Bible, they are part of the story that God is telling. It arches from creation through the goodness of God, the stupidity of humanity, the goodness of God, the brokenness of humanity, the goodness of God and the craziness of humanity, to the blazing victory of the goodness of God, to the fulfillment of creation and recreation, and the complete recovery of humanity and the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. All right. She's playing, so I gotta hustle this up here a little bit. <laughs> the Bible is part of God's word. He's given his spirit and revealed his heart to human writers so that they could write it down what he showed them. He's preserved their writing for all generations to have so that they can use it to seek God's heart. It is holy, but it is not God. It points to God. Jesus is the full statement of God's word. He fulfills the laws, speaks the judgments, makes the promises, and tells the truth. He is the Word, and he's given us his spirit to open our hearts to God's Word for us. Now, it's going to be lunchtime soon. I know where our hearts are going. <laughs> As you go to lunch, rejoice and be filled. Feast yourselves on the everlasting goodness of God found in his Word all of it. 
Brothers and sisters, the word of God himself has told us, human beings cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Almighty Lord, you've spoken creation into being. You've spoken humanity into spiritual life. You've spoken your character and your story onto paper. You've spoken your living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, to show us your heart and bring us into your heart. To this very moment and forevermore, you speak your spirit into us so that we might live in you forever. We raise our words of praise to you. We bless each other with words of love. We set our hearts on walking in your word to the very end. Amen.